Remarkable because, like them, it started as a voluntary hospital, running a hospital in the face of strong disapproval from the war office, who basically believed that women doctors should sit at home and knit socks. Um, But six months later, this group found themselves in sole charge of an official army hospital in the middle of London at the invitation of and funded by that same war office. Now, the founders of the WHC were two friends, Flora Murray on the right and Louisa Garrett Anderson, daughter of Elizabeth, on the left. At the outbreak of war, both women were in their early 40s and both were actually rather well known because of their activities in the militant suffrage movement. Flora Murray, on the right, had been honorary physician to Mrs. Pankhurst's organisation and in that capacity she'd tended women injured in scuffles with the police, she'd run a, a small nursing home in Notting Hill Gate where hunger-striking suffragettes released from Holloway were were treated, and she'd carried out a very brave uh, and rather vociferous campaign against the Home Office practice of forcible feeding. Louisa Garrett Anderson had similarly campaigned actively and spoken. She'd organised rallies uh, and, and so on, but she'd gone further. She'd done what very few women doctors felt secure enough to do. She'd actually thrown a stone through the window of a cabinet minister's house in protest at a speech he'd made and as a result had gone to prison uh, for a month. Compared to most of their female contemporaries, their medical experience was really quite quite good. Flora Murray had done her her time as an anaesthetist and an asylum doctor and was currently working as a physician at a small children's hospital in West London. Uh, Louisa Garrett Anderson had, um, uh, was also working at the same children's hospital as a surgeon uh, and she had actually spent about 11 years, as far as I remember, working as a surgeon to outpatients in her mother's new hospital for women, the hospital in the Euston Road that subsequently became the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Hospital. And when hostilities started, both women knew exactly what they were going to do. They were going to contribute to the medical services for the troops and prove that women doctors could do the job as well as men. But they also knew from their experience in the suffrage movement that there was absolutely no point going to the war office, that their, uh, their offer would, uh, any offer of help would be rejected. So they bypassed the British and went to the French. They went to the French embassy in London and offered their services, offered to open up a voluntary hospital in Paris. And their offer was accepted. They were referred to the French Red Cross, who undertook to find them travel permits, uh, find them premises and and arrange the necessary uh, travel permits. So the next few weeks were hectic, and there's a nice description of uh, their preparations. They had about three weeks to make their preparation, and during that time, between 2,000 and 3,000 pounds were raised without making any public appeal. Approximately £1,000 was spent on equipment and stores, which was supplied by John Barker and Co. of Kensington, where the large packing cases outside the shop attracted considerable attention. Beside the shopping, there were innumerable things to be done. Everyone had to be inoculated and vaccinated. Uniforms had to be designed and made, passports procured, and transport arranged for some 80 tonnes of baggage, 
uh, and the personnel. And the newly formed Women's Hospital Corps was ready to leave for France, the first women's unit to go abroad, on the 15th of September 1914. The group was small. There were just five doctors, eight nurses, three orderlies, uh, uh, women orderlies, and two men. And here, two pictures. Um, I don't know, do I, if I point it? No, I have to point that way. Um, this is the uniform that Anderson and Murray designed for their, for their women's hospital corps. And there's a rather fuzzy, I'm afraid, picture from a family album of Louisa Garrett Anderson on the train, just ticking off last items on her list. Their destination was the very grand Hotel Claridge on the Champs-Élysées. Here's the building today. It's been recently converted into luxury apartments, but in 1914 it was newly completed, an enormous shell of marble and gilt, um, empty, well, almost empty, of, of builder's rubble. The women immediately set to to convert the premises as best they could, and the first patients started arriving a couple of days after they did, from the battlefields of N and Soissons, two of the uh, nastier early battles. The 100-bed hospital rapidly became known to one and all as Claridge's. Wounded men poured in. With no experience of trauma and little, none at all of, of, of treating male patients, the women were suddenly confronted with enormous numbers of really seriously ill uh, injured uh, men, a high proportion of them needing urgent surgery. They found themselves dealing with severe head injuries, practicing primitive neurosurgery, ch uh, with chest and abdominal injuries, and of course hideously fractured limbs. And these three photographs of the hotel carriage are also from family albums, hence their quality. Um, here, oh, here we have the uh, uh, just. Um, a quick look to show you the outdoor treatment that was so common for wounds just there in the courtyard there. But I particularly like this cavernous ward on the right, um, totally unsuitable for a hospital ward, with the chandeliers and the wall brackets all carefully bandaged up against uh, war damage. With its tessellated marble floor, its tiled walls and good su uh, water supply, the ladies' lavatory made an excellent operating theatre with an adjoining room equipped with gas rings and fish kettles for sterilizing. Here, Flora Murray is the anaesthetist, uh, with two of the younger doctors acting as surgeons. The casualties didn't stop, and it was quickly realized that they were going to need to send for reinforcements. A couple of weeks later, two more doctors arrived with extra nurses, two motor ambulances, and the x-ray machine. And these are the now seven doctors in the, of the WHC in the courtyard of Claridge's, flanked by their two senior orderlies. And as you saw earlier, Anderson and Murray are on the right of the front row. I think looking at this picture, the interesting question to me is, how on earth did these doctors think they'd be able to manage? Two of these seven had only just graduated and only one of them, apart from Murray and Anderson, had had any postgraduate experience at all. And only Louisa Garrett Anderson had done any operating. But again, apart from a few months' postgraduate experience in Chicago, where she followed a surgeon around for six months, um, her only surgical experience had been gained in outpatients in a women's and children's hospitals, so hardly a good preparation for trauma surgery. And indeed, the learning curve was very steep. Anderson wrote back to her mother 
soon after arriving, we will get unique surgical experience. Sometimes I'm in theatre from 2 till 9 or 10 at night. The cases come to us very septic and the wounds are terrible. Today we're having an amputation of thigh, two head cases, perhaps trefine, and five smaller ones. The cases are very heavy, especially the severe fracture of thighs. They need four people at least to dress them and take the best part of an hour each. With an inexperienced staff and a caseload like that, you would think the hospital was destined to fail. But amazingly, it didn't. It survived and flourished, and its reputation grew, not merely because it was a woman-run hospital, but, but because their results were as good as, and in some cases better than, the other voluntary hospitals around. And this picture shows the doctor in charge, Flora Murray, at her desk in the foyer at Claridge's. Inevitably, interest in their activities was intense. The great, the good, and the curious descended on the hospital at all hours, usually unannounced. Representatives came from the RAMC, the French Army Medical Services, and the French and English newspapers. Relatives and friends, many of them uh, colleagues from the suffrage days, tended to arrive unannounced, expecting to be shown around. And uh, contrasting this enthusiasm for their um, activities with the widespread combination of the suffrage movement before the war, Anderson commented, it's a new experience to be so popular. Many newspapers and journals of the day reported their activities more often than not in that um, unique combination of incredulity and hagiography that seems to characterise reports of women's war work in 1914. For example, here, much overuse of words like splendid and tender. But as a result, even in the chaotic circumstances of autumn 1914, Claridge's and the Women's Hospital Corps became widely known. By the end of October... The pattern of fighting had changed. Hospitals in Paris had less work. Casualties were bypassing Paris and going back to the the Channel. So medical services at the Channel were absolutely overwhelmed with casualties. And the RAMC were desperate for more help there. Having heard good reports of Claridge's, they not only accepted an offer from the WHC to open and run a second hospital near Boulogne, but agreed to fund it for them. This new hospital would be officially recognised by the army, who would supply stores, ration, clothing and fuel. Uh, Most of the buildings, of course, by that time were requisitioned, but uh, so the only premises that were at all suitable were the rather bizarre-looking Chateau Mauricien at Vimoreux, which you see there. Um, Anderson moved to the coast... Um, with some staff, and Murray stayed at Paris, and the chateau was full from the day it opened. And here's the theatre in action. Um, the surgeon, famous surgeon Sir Frederick Treves, who toured hospitals in northern France for the British Red Cross uh, in December 1914, commented favourably on the hospital. It is worked entirely by lady doctors and has in all 65 beds. The wards are cheerful, tidy, and well-provided. The theatre is not very fortunately placed, but the villa provided no other room than that selected by the ladies. There is a nice garden to the house. The work of the hospital, which is full of patients, is carried on with great earnestness and enthusiasm. 
It was at Vimereux that an incident occurred that was later recorded by a cartoonist for Punch. The chief surgeon, Louisa Garrett Anderson, recognised one of her patients as the man who had arrested her some years earlier at a suffrage demonstration. And for those of you who can't read the caption, it says, eminent woman surgeon who's also an ardent suffragist to to wounded guardsmen, do you know, I'm sure she said my man, your face is singularly familiar to me. I've been trying to remember where we've met before, and the guardsman is saying rather sheepishly, well, mum, bygones be bygones, I was a police constable. By December, still in 1914, fuel was becoming scarce in in Paris, and the enormous hotel carriage could no longer be heated economically. So the women women decided to close it and to concentrate their efforts at Vimereux, and they'd no sooner done that than they learnt that war office plans had changed and there was an enormous expansion going on of hospital beds in London, well, in the UK. So they suggested they might be better, better employed running a hospital in England. Now, the offer was referred to the war office, and the two women were summoned to a meeting with the Director General of the Army, uh, Army Medical Services, Sir Alfred Keogh, who astonished them by offering them the opportunity to run a military hospital in London. The acknowledgement that they had shown themselves competent to do so was, of course, already a tremendous victory in the struggle for the vote. And taking on such a hospital would enable them to uh, show exactly that women doctors were capable uh, of, of doing what men could do. So they leapt at the opportunity. They closed Vimereux and returned to London. And the premises that had been assigned to them were those of the former St. Giles in the Field and St. George's Bloomsbury Workhouse in Endell Street, Covent Garden. And for those of you who know the area, this is an OS map of 1914. Um, Broad Street is, of course, now High Hoban. That's the Shaftesbury Theatre. Uh, And these were... uh, I'm not sure whether they're still called the Oasis Public Baths. They are, thank you. And, uh, in fact, now the uh, Christchurch was demolished in 1930s and the the open-air pool comes down here. But here is Short's Gardens... And here is the workhouse. Now, the workhouse was an 18th century foundation. It's believed to have been the model for Oliver Twist. Uh, I I have no idea whether it was or not. Um, But it had finally closed in June 1914, and the workhouse buildings had been empty. And in March 1915, it was in the process of being converted into a hospital. Uh, And Anderson and Murray were shown round the hospital by the colonel in charge of the renovations, who was simply appalled at the thought of women running his hospital and with repeated exclamations of, good God, women, spent some time questioning the sanity of his superior officers. And over the next few weeks, he became progressively more obstructive and difficult and work on the hospital slowed to a standstill and eventually the women appealed to Sir Alfred Keogh and persuaded him to let them supervise the works themselves. And uh, the colonel was removed, and of course the work proceeded apace. Now the Endell Street Military Hospital, the only British Army hospital ever to have been staffed and run entirely by women, opened in mid-May 1915. Murray was doctor in charge, graded for the purposes of pay as a lieutenant colonel. Of course, women couldn't hold rank in the First World War, 
while um, Anderson was chief surgeon graded for pay as a major. However, in the eyes of the staff and patients, the two women were equal. They were always referred to as the commanding officers or, or COs. The hospital had 573 beds and a staff of around 180. 15 doctors, most of whom were visiting consultants, 36 nurses, 80 orderlies, a quartermaster, a transport officer, a steward, dispensers, clerks, cooks and cleaners, all of them women. Now, the sharp-eyed of you will have noticed that there's a group of men on the right-hand side. This was a small detachment of RAMC men um, assigned to the hospital as orderlies to do the heavy work. And, of course, being the First World War, they were all men unfit for active service. And as far as the COs were concerned, they were pretty useless. They reckoned that most of the young women, when trained, orderlies, their orderlies, when trained, could do the job as well as the men. And, in fact, very soon after this wonderful photo was taken, they had succeeded in reducing the detachment down to eight and a sergeant major, and they managed fine for the rest of the war. But I particularly, I love this photo, which I found in Leeds University archives, with Murray, with the dog on her, her lap, um, Anderson and um, their uh, quartermaster, Olga Campbell, together with the sergeant major, surrounded in the places of authority, surrounded by their men. The early days at the hospital were difficult for all concerned. The staff was new to its work, the equipment was incomplete and army methods puzzling. It was a case of sink or swim and so, of course, the Corps swam. The army certainly made no concessions to the women and because Endell Street was so close to the mainline railway stations, particularly, of course, Charing Cross, where the boat trains from Dover came in, the staff found themselves receiving a higher proportion of desperately ill patients than other hospitals. 513 of their 573 beds were surgical, and when convoys arrived, often as many as 80 men at a time, there could be up to 30 people, 30 cases to go to this little theatre in a day. And these two x-rays, sadly not from Endell Street, but taken at another women's hospital during the First World War in France, show very much the sort of surgery that these women were doing. Removal of pieces of shrapnel on the left, um, obviously from a thigh, and opening up wounds that are contaminated by gas-forming bacteria. I don't know whether around this fracture you can see the bubbles of gas that are forming. At least one of the doctors, a new graduate, found that she hated the work. She wrote home in a letter to her parents, I'm not at all keen on military surgery, but I suppose I shall get used to it and do it better. At present, I think it is horrible. But the ex clinical experience and responsibility that she was gaining was considerable. She was in sole charge of 80 male patients and as a junior surgeon had a varied workload which included performing amputations, operating on hernias and traumatic aneurysms, repairing nerves and muscles damaged as a result of limb fractures, inserting chest drains and assisting with cases of intestinal obstruction. Now that they were back in England running an official military hospital, life should have been easier for them. But in fact, it proved to be considerably more difficult 
than it had been in France, largely because of the attitude and the hostility of many of the war office staff with whom the women had to deal. The Endell Street was tolerated by the RAMC purely because it was under the patronage of its director general. The, the, the overall feeling was that the hospital would be likely to last no more than six months. But in the event, of course, it lasted for over four and a half years. This is a rather nice uh, sketch of Anderson operating at, at Endell Street. Infection was, of course, the single most difficult problem for surgeons in World War I um, military hospitals because of wound contamination. And before the advent of antibiotics, all you could really do about it was to clean wounds repeatedly and dress them daily. And I've already uh, quoted Anderson as saying that this could take up four people over an hour uh, for one patient in severe cases. Um, and here a nurse and two orderlies are indeed doing dressings on the ward. This is Dr. Helen Chambers, a brilliant academic who was pathologist in the hospital and after the war had a, had a very distinguished career in cancer research. And it was her collaboration with Anderson that enabled Anderson to carry out clinical trials which were reported in four scientific papers in The Lancet, uh, one of which described their results with a compound that appeared to reduce significantly the frequency with which surgical dressings needed to be changed. And, and the war was effectively, of course, providing women with their first opportunity to carry out clinical research. Until then, their publications had tended to be restricted to case reports and small series. And in all, seven papers from Endell Street were published in The Lancet, essentially the first hospital-based research papers published by British women doctors. Endell Street's work on wound healing was considered sufficiently important for no less a person than Sir Alfred Keogh, Director General of the Army Medical Services, to come and inspect them. And here, a rather splendid picture photographed for propaganda purposes. I'll go into that later, the women's propaganda purposes. Um, Sir Alfred, the gent with the moustache, with her back to us, Flora Murray, and behind, standing behind, Louisa Garrett Anderson. He's come to inspect the orderlies, the male patients, the soldiers, evidently ranged uh, round the courtyard. The pageant of women war workers in July 1918 in celebration of the Royal Silver Wedding was another occasion to publicise Endell Street. And the immaculate turnout of the hospital contingent was commented on all, by all the papers, the Times particularly excelling itself by gushing, most feminine of all, with brown veils fluttering in the wind, with the military nurses from Endell Street Hospital, eyes left as they took the King's salute. While the publicity surrounding their work had been intense in Paris, it was immeasurably greater now the WHC were back in London. An official military hospital run by women in the centre of London was an extraordinary phenomenon, and they, the women were very well aware of the potential propaganda value of their hospital for the women's cause. And they arranged for two local photographic studios to take high-quality, carefully staged pictures showing the work of the hospital in the best possible light. 
And many of these photographs, which were handed out to the press at regular intervals, survive today in family albums. Uh, I'm just going to show you a series of them. Unfortunately, some of them I've had to scan from newspapers, so their quality isn't always as good as the original. But here, this rather charming one, the transport officer, Mardi Hodgson, at the gate to the hospital with the sergeant major, who is the only man working there of whom the COs approved. Uh, The photographs they uh, they commissioned were to show not only that the women were doing all the sort of jobs that you would expect women to do, so dealing with dirty linen, airing the linen, and and checking the stores of linen, uh, moving trolleys of food across the courtyard of the hospital, but also they were doing the men's jobs. They were I say men in inverted commas, of course, Um, they were unloading stores. They were transporting patients who'd arrived by convoy. They were hosing down the courtyard. We're talking about 1915 here. Uh, They were making up drugs in the dispensary, reading plates, reading microscope slides in the cultures, in the uh, pathology lab, and making and fitting prostheses to patients and indeed just running the place. The uh, photographs that they got commissioned also record the lighter side of life in the hospital. Here, an American champion boxer, that's the guy on the right in black, whose name I'm afraid I've forgotten, is giving a demonstration stroke masterclass to patients at the hospital. And here's the chorus of penguins at the 1917 Christmas show, performed on a stage which I should add had the militant suffrage suffrage motto Deeds Not Words inscribed over the proscenium arch. And here, my absolute favourite picture of all illustrating the extraordinary gender reversal that was operating at Endell Street. Flora Murray discharges convalescent patients. The figure of authority is the woman, She is sitting there, bathed in light, which is descending, filtering through the blinds, almost certainly from heaven, and with a group of men standing, the front one standing at attention, patiently waiting for her to discharge them. And I think this is an absolutely wonderful bit of feminist propaganda. Here we have some of the Endell Street orderlies, young girls fresh out of the best public schools, Possibly not all of them fresh out of the best public schools, but most. The two COs devoted a lot of time to educating their younger members of staff because they believed that when women finally got the vote, they should be ready to shoulder the responsibilities uh, and burdens of citizenship. So every Friday evening, either Murray or Anderson gave a lecture to the staff on topics they considered important. Lives of famous women were favourite topics, but they also gave teaching sessions about interesting cases on the ward. And and it's reported that the illustrated talk on the intestinal parasites that accompanied Australian patients from Gallipoli was particularly appreciated and a huge success. This very strong figure is Beatrice Harridan, a very well-known novelist of the day and an ardent supporter of Mrs. Pankhurst, who was in charge of the library at Endell Street. Many 
former colleagues in the militant suffrage movement filled similar voluntary posts at the hospital, helping to promote the women's cause. The staff were quick to exploit the hospital for suffragist ends. And I think the reason they could do it so successfully in an army hospital was almost certainly because the RAMC so disapproved of them that they basically left them to their own devices. From time to time, the whole hospital complement, staff and ambulant patients, uh, volunteers, assembled in the courtyard to be addressed by the doctor in charge. And this particular picture is the third anniversary of the opening of Endell Street, at which long service certificates were presented to staff who'd been at the hospital from the start, uh, and at which Murray made a speech to the assembled company about duty. And I think you can see from her posture, she's obviously that one there, that she was a confident public speaker. And I'm sure that the experience that she'd gained at suffrage meetings, speaking at suffrage meetings and rallies, would have given her the necessary poise. And I should remind you that only 10 years earlier, it would have been almost unthinkable for a woman to get up and address a very large mixed audience such as this. In August 1917, Murray and Anderson were awarded the CBE in the first list for that honour for their war work. And here the two women are seen outside Buckingham Palace with a group of orderlies who brought the two women's dogs um, to, to, to meet them when they came out. And by the end of 1919, six of the Endell Street doctors had been awarded either the OBE or the CBE for their war work. And this is a rather nice August bank holiday scene at which patients, their visitors and staff are out in the the sunshine uh, of the the hospital um, enjoying enjoying the ambiance and the the entertainment. I suppose we should ask how the soldiers reacted to being looked after by women doctors. Well, the evidence is that they were quite happy with being at Endell Street. In nearly five years, no patient raised an objection to being looked after by a woman. And a wounded Australian, in fact, wrote back to his father, the Women's Hospital Corps Hospital is the best in London. The management is good, and the surgeons take great interest in and pains with their patients. The whole hospital is a triumph for women, and incidentally, it is a triumph for suffragettes. Uh, So, Endell Street Military Hospital was not only an army hospital with a difference, but I also think it was a different, vastly different from other women's hospitals in World War I. First of all, they were recognised by the War Office, and in fact they were unique among women's units in running an official army hospital. And this fact was terribly important to Murray and Anderson, They were great pains to emphasize on every occasion that theirs was a professional unit, not a voluntary unit, and not to be confused with the more amateur setups run by women, often with male staff. And because it was an army hospital, they were, of course, free of the necessity to fundraise, which was another problem that the voluntary hospitals had in World War I. And this meant that any money donated by friends and well-wishers could be used to uh, improve the patient's lot. Teams of volunteers ensured that fresh flowers were put in all the rooms and changed daily, 
that tubs in the courtyard were always filled with flowers. Standard lamps for the uh, soldiers to read by and different coloured blankets in each ward were among the many extras provided from donations. Uh, And because they were in the centre of London and not in far-flung Serbia or Russia, the WHC were able to avail themselves of facilities and opportunities that weren't on offer for other women's units. And press reports, of which there are many, frequently state that the atmosphere at Endell Street was unusual for an army hospital. Um, Its amusements department arranged a wide variety of activities um, and social functions, often as many as two or three a week. There was a well-stocked library, a hall with a stage, and many famous actors and actresses, often friends of the staff, uh, were persuaded to perform for the patients there. Sports days featured crawling and cigarette races for those who could manage to take part, while on the wards, needlework classes were popular, many of the soldiers developing considerable skill at embroidery, and there are quite a few items beautifully embroidered, large items, uh, survive from uh, Endell Street. Christmas time saw fierce competition between the wards for Christmas decorations, and this is St. Veronica Ward, which won the fifth block prize for its Japanese garden theme in Christmas 1917. The psychological treatments, uh, aspects of treatment were particularly emphasised at Endell Street. Um, writing to her mother again, Anderson, sa- Anderson said, I like the opportunity of being a little good to these bruised men. Their minds are full of horrors and it is a help to them to come into a soothing atmosphere with decent food and soft beds, and our gentle, merry young orderly girls who feed them with cigarettes and write to their mothers and read to them. All the men are shocked by what they've been through, and normal comforts and little pleasures make them sleep and forget a little. I think it's difficult to imagine that decent food, soft beds, gentle, merry young orderly girls, and little pleasures would be high on the list of therapeutic priorities for a more orthodox uh, military hospital. The hospital finally closed in late 1919, having cared for over 26,000 patients, 24,000 of them men, and many, many more in casualty as outpatients. There's no doubt that the work of the women at the hospital played a considerable part in enhancing the image of women doctors at the end of the war. The women had shown themselves very publicly to be administratively and professionally capable of running a hospital, of coping with complex medical and surgical problems and of competently treating um, soldiers, men. They'd done the job at least as well as the men would have done. Uh, And there was a rather muddled but doubtless well-meant comment in the Tatler. The noble ladies who managed the suffragette hospital in Endell Street are men in the best sense of that word and yet women in the best sense of that word also. And I think possibly more than that tribute, um, Murray and Anderson would have valued uh, a let- the letter from Sir Alfred Keogh in 1918 when he wrote, I was subjected to great pressure adverse to your movement when we started to establish your hospital, but I had every confidence that the new idea would justify itself as it has abundantly done. 
Let me therefore thank you and Dr. Flora Murray not only what you've done for the country, but what you have done for me personally. I should have been an object of scorn and ridicule if you'd failed, but I never for once contemplated failure. And I think we can now congratulate ourselves on having established a record of a new kind. I think your success has probably done more for the cause of women than anything else I know of. After the hospital closed, the two women, Anderson on the left, Murray on the right, returned to their civilian practice. Murray started a a book about the WHC's wartime exploits, which was published in 1920, and if you can get hold of it, it's a great read, um, though it has an agenda. And in 1921, the two women retired to their cottage in Buckinghamshire, and these two portraits were painted around that time. So finally, why, if the hospital was so well known at the time, is so little known about it today? Well, probably the main reason is, although you remember that the Imperial War Museum, which was set up during the war, uh, had an arm which was collecting examples of women's war work, and it has a huge women's work collection, um, a wonderful collection of uh, documenting the work, Flora Murray refused to allow Endell Street to be included on the grounds that hers was a proper army hospital, not to be lumped in with the numerous voluntary hospitals run by titled ladies. She didn't want to see it in that group. So there is unsurprisingly no record of it in the RAMC archive. Um, But nevertheless, there is a beautiful irony in the fact that the most lasting relic of Endell Street is in fact with the RAMC today. In 1920, Murray and Anderson agreed to the Imperial War Museum Museum commissioning a a painting of their work. And this interesting, if rather heroic, composition was painted by Francis Dodd, better known for his wartime portraits of admirals and generals. Entitled An Operation at the Military Hospital Endell Street, it shows uh, Anderson operating with one of the other doctors here, two assistants, uh, and Flora Murray giving the anaesthetic. And it now hangs in the officers' mess at the Defence Medical Services Training Centre, the RAMC uh, Centre at Keogh Barracks in Surrey, on permanent loan from the IWM. And I'd just like to point out in passing the way that Flora Murray has removed the anaesthetic mask briefly to reveal the moustache of the patient and so emphasise that he is male. In 1920, the vote had been won for women, but the franchise was still only partial, so the feminist point was still worth making. Uh, There is now a second memorial to Endell Street I should just tell you about in the form of a commemorative plaque unveiled last November on the wall of the flats that now occupy the hospital site. So this is, this is um, uh, where uh, Endell Street was. And last November, we had an unveiling ceremony and the, uh, a, a specially commissioned plaque, which you see here, swathed in suffrage colours, was opened, unveiled by the most senior woman Woman, in the Briti- woman doctor in the British Army, a full colonel, Colonel Hilary Hodgson, and she made a splendid speech and, and, and unveiled the plaque, which is now on the wall. And I hope that 
You will all go and see this. Endell Street is very nearby. Don't go at the moment. Um, British Gas have got the whole street up and you can't get anywhere near it. But in a few months, go down Endell Street uh, and remember the amazing women of the military hospital in the First World War. And just before I finish, I'd like to thank uh, the members of the, acknowledge the members of the Anderson family and indeed sons and daughters of other members of the Women's Hospital Corps. Victoria Ray, the archivist at the Royal Free, ne- Professor Neil McIntyre from the Royal Free, and Heather Sherd, who's a historian in Australia who helped me with uh, foreign um, uh, sources. Thank you very much. <laughs>